from the CNG studio. No, wait. The Brooklyn Paper Building? Wait. Where are we? I don't know. All I know from is your back. downtown Brooklyn. That's where we are. This is Brooklyn Paper Radio. I'm your host, Vince Kimaselli, along with, of course, my co-host, Tony Rotuno. Tony. I'm here. And I'm, welcome back, Vince. I'm back from vacation. He still thinks he's on Cape Cod. Oh, I wish. You know, there was one day, all I did was drink rum and Cokes. It sounds like heaven. The whole day. Why did you come back? I don't know what I was thinking. He's holding a we water ran, we, bottle we right We ran now. out of rum. <laughs> well, that's as good as reason as any. Now, is this correct? Rum and Coke is, is a Cuba Libre? Oh, that's above my Anyone? pay grade. Anyone? Anyone know? We're going to have to Google that. Bobby, Bobby, you're in charge of Googling things. Google that. Find out if that is, in fact, the case. Bobby is not Jimmy, I, although you probably think he is. He's hey. someone different than Jimmy. He's very similar to Jimmy. Yeah, they, have, they, they, they act alike. They look alike. They talk alike. I think no. I think Bobby's much more handsome than Jimmy. Oh, that's kind. I think that yeah, no, that's a no contest there. <laughs> nothing, nothing bad to say about. I Jimmy. forget what Jimmy looks like. He's been gone for so long. Well, Jimmy, what do you go? Johnny though, very handsome. Oh, he was a charmer. Yeah, that's that. Twinkle in that eye. So yeah, it was it was a good vacation, good week. I had to I had to take care of the pool. I was in charge of taking care of the pool. I heard. You I was to... at the uh, the in laws' house up there in Cape Cod. It sounds like. An amazing place to spend a week. It really is. It really Once is. Once the pool is clear. It's an above-ground pool that, when we opened it, looked like an above-ground marsh. Yuck. There's a little marshland there. But it's been you so know they hot. Call it, they call it pea soup. Yeah, I don't like to eat it or swim in it. But I don't buy any of that stuff. You know, when you're buying stuff at the You're at the pool just store? a chlorine man, right? Just chlorine. That's Good old-fashioned bleach. I just go in there. I say, give me chlorine. And they, look, we're beeping. Look, people are texting us. Who got texted? I think everyone is so happy we're back. We were on hiatus last week. Yeah, um, we hope everyone in. enjoyed their July 4th. All chlorine. Nothing just else. Just chlorine in the Nothing pool. else. You just get piles and piles of chlorine. You pour it in until the liner is white. So then you don't believe in those vacuums or those no, things? No, no, no. You still have to vacuum. You still use that. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that. Dirt gets into the pool. you got to vacuum it up. But the way to keep it crystal clear is chlorine. Just some chlorine. And you were telling me baking soda for Baking acidity. soda for pH levels, yes. Right. Baking soda. You, you know, I was, a, I was a lifeguard back in the day. But you were not in charge of the filters or the filtration I did system. test the acidity and the chlorine levels, though. And then what did you do? You reported to someone. I wrote it on a piece of paper that no one ever looked at. But right. I knew how to drop the pellet in the tube. Oh, they had a pellet for the chlorine. Yeah, it? yeah. Yes. So when you told me that the wa the the sample turned beet red, I knew it was bad. It was very bad. Um, I was, I remembered that from my. I put a lot of I put a lot of chlorine in. When you you have a green pool, the best method is to just they call it shocking it, and you then you could buy it, stuff shock called shock. Clarity. You could buy stuff called shock, but all it is is chlorine. It's just a lot of chlorine. It's like. You know, Listen, by the time I left, the pool, was crystal, the, the pool was crystal clear, and that's all that. Most importantly, you know what else I used to do, which is, I'm going to use one of my classic segues. I spent a summer collecting signatures to get a borough president candidate on the ballot. This is a Tony Rotono segue. And today Go. in the studio, we're really excited um, because we have another hopeful politician not running for borough president but for state senate Look, here I wrote, in Brooklyn. I wrote down this whole intro. Which I'm going to toss to you for your intro. Because, you know, our guest today is Julia Salazar. She is a 27-year-old self-proclaimed democratic socialist who wants to represent Bushwick, Williamsburg, Greenpoint, Cypress Hill. Cypress Hill? I like to say Cypress, not Cypress. What's a Cypress? Is that a thing? I've never heard know, let's that move on. pronunciation. East New York, Bedford-Stuyvesant, and Brownsville in the state senate. She's hoping to oust 
Uh, Martin Dillon. Correct. I did that right? Yeah. Okay, because I'm not good with my... Who would be running name. for his ninth? Term? I could do a very good Italian if you want me to do Italian. Uh, Vincendo Di Micheli. Yeah. yeah. I could do that. Vincendo um, Gentile. Yeah, easy. Uh, who'll be running? He's running for his ninth term uh, this fall. Now, normally, we just don't let anyone run in for a seat. Just come in here and take over the Brooklyn Paper Radio airwaves or internet waves or whatever they might be. Even if they're even very if, prestigious waves. Even if even if you're a socialist, because this is in fact the People's Republic of Brooklyn. Correct. PRB. That's what we've been told. But in light of fellow Democratic socialist Alexandra. Oh, you got to do this one for me. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Ocasio-Cortez still buzzed about victory uh, over the long-serving Queens Congressman Joe Crowley, who happened to be the leader of, the, of that borough's Democratic Party. Yes. Shocking loss. Came out of nowhere. But not if you read the New York Times this weekend. They would have told you now. It didn't come out of nowhere. Holtzman did it in Brooklyn years ago. But we'll get back to that. Uh, that was in last month's uh, primary. We thought we'd let Salazar in. So... In the time since we set up this interview, she has scooped up endorsements of other Democrats, including uh, our governor. Oh, wait, not our governor. Our would-be governor. Our governor foe. Yes. Cynthia Nixon, who I've seen in the elevator here at the beautiful Brooklyn Paper Building, by the way. Yes, we, you, but you've min- not managed to get her in this studio yet. You know what? That I'm is a, your I'm job. A, I, it is my job, and I'm, I look forward to doing that in the future. <laughs> but not today. Not today. No, not right now. You know, I got I to gotta go pick up my kid. You got a heart out. <laughs> I got to get out of here. All right. Um, so we said uh, Nixon. We got Congressman Nidia Velasquez, uh, Bushwick Councilman Antonio Reynoso. Mm-hmm. So we got a lot of endorsements going on now. Spade, yeah. So I would like to welcome Julia to the show, and I ask her right here and right now, what the heck is a democratic socialist, and aren't those terms mutually exclusive? Go. Well, I'm honored to be here. Uh, a democratic socialist, uh, yeah, these terms are not mutually exclusive at all. What it means for me to be a democratic socialist is to fight for a society in which everyone is cared for and everyone has uh, the resources, is empowered to not only survive, but uh, to thrive in our society. Uh, fighting for a more uh, collective, cooperative society, uh, which to me is completely consistent with democratic principles. Okay, so you don't you don't see the two as in, in any now, but here's here's the thing because you, you mentioned cooperative and collectively and doing things together. Because when I mentioned to my son this morning, driving him to camp this morning, I said that uh, you know I'm going to have on a, a socialist on the on the radio show, and I asked him, so do you know what a socialist is? And he's like, well, you know, I think it sounds really nice, you know, socialist socialism. It sounds nice. He goes, but I think it's kind of bad, like communism. Mm. That's what he said to me. Mm. So now, uh, how do you explain to an 11-year-old what what you're actually trying to do and what the differences are? And, you know, is communism all that bad? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So uh, I won't speak to communism, (laughs) but rather to to democratic socialism. I think in talking to not only an 11-year-old, but uh, to to voters, to anyone um, who cares about the issues, it's saying, what what is the actual impact of democratic socialist policies? Uh, Do we think that it is just that people are unable to see a doctor uh, to receive health care based on their socioeconomic status, their income, their immigration status. A democratic socialist says, no, it's, it's unjust. Uh, everybody should have access to health care. It's a human right. Uh, says that everyone should have access to affordable housing. It's a human right. 
people shouldn't be displaced in the thousands every year. Uh, families forced out of their homes who've lived in Bushwick across North Brooklyn for decades. Uh, so fighting for uh, universal rent control for expanding the rent stabilization system, ending policies that hurt tenants. These are democratic socialist policies. So, your, uh, your this the current state state senator, I guess your competition. Um, you know he's been in office for going on nine terms. If he wins, how how do you what are you saying to constituents or would be constituents to kind of get them? behind you, because clearly it seems, at least the way they've been casting their ballots, they're fine with what he's doing. So are you, you know, are you pointing out things that he's claiming to have done that he's not doing, or things that they don't even know? Like, what are you doing to kind of get them to listen, to, to, to change their mind? Yeah, so there actually is a pretty high level of civic engagement and awareness uh, across North Brooklyn. Uh, people are familiar with Dilan and also with his record of taking an enormous amount of money from for-profit real estate developers and corporations, uh, and, and they know that it's directly informed the policies that he has supported. Uh, so years ago, he supported vacancy control uh, and uh, has failed. Now, what is that to listeners who don't know what vacancy decontrol is? So basically, it... Uh, incentivizes tenant harassment uh, because uh, landlords, uh, management companies, when they can get a tenant out, uh, they uh, are eligible potentially for a vacancy bonus or an eviction bonus. Uh, but additionally, it allows them to raise the rent uh, on a previously stabilized apartment. Okay. So, so this has directly led, uh, has been the leading cause of thousands of units every year being destabilized, and the effects of it are, are perhaps most apparent across North Brooklyn in neighborhoods like mine in, in Bushwick, Williamsburg, Greenpoint. Uh, so um, I think that uh, advocates in the area, community members, they're aware that Dilan has, has sold, sold out. Uh, and that when we confront him about it, as as many of us have over the last 16 years that he's been in the state senate, he makes excuses. He he has had plenty of time to change course and has failed to. Right, but when you say he sold out, like what do you mean exactly? What has he done that made him sell out? Yeah, in the first place, it was supporting vacancy control. Later, claiming that he didn't realize the effect that it would have on the district, even though advocates at the time even were were really pressing him, making it clear to him this is going to directly, this is going to completely change North Brooklyn. Um, it's going to displace many of us. So um, that he then has has said that it was a mistake, but then never corrected course, uh, has, has no interest in ending vacancy decontrol or the eviction bonuses or uh, MCI-induced, major capital investment-induced increases. All of these things are policies that work for, for developers, but at the expense of tenants. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I mean by, by selling out. So, but I'm guessing, and I, I don't know for sure, I don't know the numbers, but I'm guessing there's a, there's a, a, there's a lot of um, rent-stabilized and rent-controlled housing in the neighborhoods that we're talking about. 
Is it a disproportionate amount from the rest of the city, or? I'd say it's not a disproportionate amount uh, uh, from the rest of the city. Um, it's it's something like close to half mm -hmm. of um, of all units are rent stabilized, uh, but but um, it's still an issue that is I would say disproportionately affecting residents of our district, mm -hmm. right? Because the people who are being displaced are are working class, um, are people of color. Uh, and and these are the majority demographics uh, across the district. And what does this law exactly do? You're talking about, you said bonuses for 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 getting people out. What, what does that mean? Yeah. So if um, if a landlord or a management company is able to successfully either evict evict someone, evict someone yeah, or um, is is able to raise the rent so that it's it's unaffordable um, and someone is displaced. Um, there's an incentive actually for them to just keep it vacant until they get whatever price they're asking for. Um, how how are they able to keep it vacant and, and make money? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, perhaps because they <laughs> they have multiple properties. Um, I, I I would assume that. Um, that it's because they're not that they're they're forgiven um, on they're given like a, a property tax break. Okay, so um, it's a, like a tax break, or it's a um, if you're losing money, uh, if if you're showing a loss on things that you you get a tax break. It might be uh, the incentive then might be. And again, I'm just speaking from based on what you're saying. I know nothing about this, but right. from what you're saying, there there might be a tax incentive for them to to keep keep things keep units empty. Just like we've talked about this before. I think like we talked about it with Stephanie with Thompson when she was here about like commercial spaces. Yeah, we never actually got to the bottom of it, but you know, certain commercial spaces on on big time commercial strips being kept empty for years and years and years. And you're just like, why isn't anything in that store? You would think the landlord would want to make money, but if the landlord, according to Stephanie, if the landlord can show that they're not making money, that they're not turning a profit. They would then there's a there's a tax break and the tax break gets them more money back than if they were renting the Isn't place. Isn't that out, how our know? president made his money? Uh, I'm kidding. I don't know. <laughs> um, haven't seen his tax releases because tax forms. Um, I don't think anyone has. <laughs> no. Well, he has. He. Well, I would hope. Um, I I I had a question and I know some uh, some in our newsroom were wondering the same thing. Uh, you know, to take a step back, why this seat? Why this district? Um, you're, as, as I understand it, you're a native of Florida, correct? But you've lived in this. You've obviously lived in the district long enough to run for office. But why, why Delon's seat? Why state senate? Why not start, you know, at at a council level? Or you, what? What about this moment made you go for this seat? You know, in your first bid for office. Sure. Uh, so I've lived in Bushwick for four years. I lived in Harlem before that. Um, and when I was a kid, I lived in Florida and in Columbia, where my family's from. Uh, but what is so crucial about this race, and I was, I was actually uh, persuaded and encouraged to run by community members uh, earlier this year. And initially, I was, I was completely on board with running someone against Dilan, but was, was wary of being the candidate and doing it myself. Uh, uh, but what's really urgent about this moment is that our rent laws are expiring next year uh, in June of 2019. So we have 
an opportunity to finally pass legislation that will work for tenants instead of for developers. Uh, but if we don't replace legislators who've, who've failed to advocate for this, then we're gonna miss that opportunity uh, to finally you know, bring the, the voices of, of tenants to Albany. Uh, and I think that there's, you know, there's over 300,000 people in this district and they can't afford to wait another two years. Uh, the state Senate is really who controls the rent laws. Uh, so while, while it's very important that we have, we have city council members like Antonio Reynoso, um, others who have really fought for uh, community, community uh, control um, and, and for progressive land use, uh, we have power at the state in the state Senate um, to finally pass rent laws that work for tenants. Got it. So um, how often do those laws get renewed? I think it's every four years. Every four years. Yeah. So we're at, the, we're at the, the, the last round of laws was passed back. What are we in? 2013? I'd have to double check. Cause so yeah. it'll be around 2015. And how does that, I mean, this, these are state laws. How do they actually affect the city? Yeah. Um, well, they, just as they affect tenants across New York State, mm -hmm. um, yeah, the like I don't know what laws, laws I don't know what laws mm -hmm. we're, we're actually talking about is what I'm saying. Like I know the right. city every year they they'll get together and they say, "All right, we're going to raise the rents for rent control or, or rent stabilized apartments by by this percentage, or we're not going to raise it this year." Right. Stuff like that. How how do these state laws affect um, rents in in Brooklyn? Sure. So uh, when we talk about expanding the rent stabilization system, mm -hmm. um, stabilizing the rents of of currently existing apartments across the city. Uh, potentially legislation that would set a cap um, on how much rent can be raised each year, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that would affect, dispro disproportionately, but in a positive way, affect tenants in North Brooklyn. Um, ending vacancy decontrol, it's also in the hands of, uh, uh, that's, that's within the power of the state Senate. Mm -hmm. There is some, some overlap between what city council members and what state legislators can push for, mm -hmm. uh, but ultimately the state, the state Senate has more power uh, when it comes to the rent laws. When it comes to the, the okay. Yeah. Were you aware of that, Tom? I, you know, <laughs> I, as with anything, it's always kind of fascinating navigating how the state affects, you know, like, like the whole speed camera thing, not to take a detour, but, uh -huh. you know, the state, that is a state law that only affects New York City, but like, you know, we can't as, like, that that's those are supplied under a state legislation that's set to expire this month, and unless the state votes to extend, well, I was it, on vacation. What happened? Did anything happen while I was away? No, I mean no. It, I still no. They haven't convened a special session, and uh -huh. the law is set to expire. Um, well, we've asked Marty Gold to come on July. the show and explain everything. Yeah, it's yeah. weird. He he never seems to um now want to join us in here. It's such <laughs> a <laughs> chummy place. <laughs> We got we to work on it. So let's talk about socialism, though, because that's how I started the show, and that's part yeah. of my, that's part of my notes here. And I think that the perception of socialism, or at least my perception, is that it, it can't really work ultimately because good organizations need good leadership, right? That's just a basic fundament of you know. I don't like to compare government to business because I don't think government is a business. It's the government, and it's supposed to get things done. But you know. You still need great leadership and great management to get things to work. And you look at stuff like NYCHA, you look at 
uh, the parks in New York City, where for years they were run fantastically, and everything worked great. But then, due to the nature of the democratic society we live in, leaders change. That's just the way we... We don't want to have one leader consistently for year after year after year. We certainly don't want a despot or a... Or a uh, you know a uh, autocrat yeah or, <laughs> or something like that. So our oligarch. our system is set up for change, and I think what happens is you know these great ideas, these great social revolutions, you know the the great society and all and all of these all of these things. What happens is new leadership comes in and they might not care as much about this whole system that's been set up, and then it just goes by the wayside. You know, I read a story this week about the Parks Department in New York City. I mean, Parks Department was run technically for like 50 or 60 years by Robert Moses. He mm. ran the Parks Department and here's a guy who was able to get things done. Like nobody got things done like Robert Moses. And what happens to Robert Moses? Like in the end, a guy writes a book about him and everybody says he was the worst person ever. You know, meanwhile, he was just a guy in government getting getting things done. And I think, um, and I'm not saying for good or for bad, but he got things done. You know, uh, whereas like when you think about socialism, you think about the government controlling things and running things over a long period of time. And my problem with that is, if you're gonna if you're gonna do that, there better be a system in place to make sure that the management of those of those things that you set up are gonna work in perpetuity. And that never seems to be the case. Like I can't point to any, you know, there's like the road system in in you know, the United States. For fifty years was fantastic, and now it's it's gone to hell. You know, mm -hmm. like, ever they, they talk like you know bridges are going to start fall. Bridges have fallen down. Like you would think that would never happen. You know that's the government's fault because. So I guess my question is, how do you set up things that can continue to go on forever? Because I don't think it's possible. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Ca caveat: I don't know that you're expected to answer that fundamental. No, worldly but <laughs> question. But in your opinion, yeah, like as 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 someone who, you know, wants the government to step in and do more, how do you make sure the government is going to continue to do more after you're gone? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, there are some things that need to fundamentally change. We need to establish more accountability. Um, that 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 our government, our elected officials are actually accountable to the people, um, to the public, rather than to special interests. Um, this is why it's it's really important for us to fight for transparency, whether and, and also to make sure that people are more actively engaged in the legislative process and in the electoral process. Mm -hmm. So fighting for early voting, fighting for same-day registration, making sure that people who have been disenfranchised or even just, I, I speak to, vo to voters every day and, and to community members um, who say, oh, I, I can't vote. I, you know, I, I was previously incarcerated, right? And then they, there are myths about actually, and these are people who, who have been paroled, which means in, in New York they can register right. to vote, right? Um, but they've they've been fed this myth that they aren't able to vote. Uh, people are there's a lot of confusion about deadlines. I think that we need to uh, we need election reform. We need campaign finance reform to make sure that the legislative process and the electoral process are more transparent, um, and that more people are um, are engaged 
in the process and in our democracy uh, so that there is minimum opportunity for corruption like wh what what you described um, and also that there there are more eyes on everything mm -hmm. um, whether whether it's making sure that when we when the state gives billions of dollars uh, to fully fund the repairs needed for the transit system uh, that that it's enforced and that there's there's complete oversight over how it's used right but that's the pr that's where things break down right you know um, I think that it's you know it's very hard great managers are important and it's very hard to keep you know to keep things to keep things going you know um, you would you know it takes really strong leadership when once you start something to to keep it going the way that you want it to and this isn't just in government you know this is in business this is in it's in life <laughs> you know Absolutely. you see it in families like the head of the household dies and everything falls apart you know yeah. uh so it's almost like human nature that it's destined to fail, and I'm, I, now I feel like Gersh here. Well, I don't know that that's <laughs> necessarily true because I think that if you do, like, I do think there's something to be said for m more engagement in the process. Like, you know, I think people are destined to fail because their constituents maybe become complacent and then they're not held accountable, as Julia was saying, you know, to do the job that they need to do with that money or make sure that money goes toward that aqueduct or whatever. You know, they, they, they fall victim to their own predilections because they're, you know, the rules are such that people aren't engaging. And I think, you know, it's a call. I think it's on the part I, of everyone. I, I think that you can because make, in a, you can make the argument all you want that people need to be more engaged or people need to be. But what I think it ultimately comes down to is is education and, and people need to be smart. Well, right. And I and think being educated is key to enga getting engaged because sometimes people are care don't care enough to know you know what's happened that's why we do what we do so that's what we, know, that's why we're here right now know what what's happening so they do something about it um but yeah i mean i think it's 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 tough and and you brought up a great you know that's something you'd be front and center with up in albany is the whole transit situation and i'm sure in the district you're canvassing you know that comes up a lot so you know obviously holding the agencies accountable, but um, you know, I wonder. I mean, you you would be entering office if you were to win four months before the L train shuts down. So you know, what are what are your thoughts on what the city and the state have proposed to kind of mitigate that L apocalypse um, that's coming? And and you know, is enough being done? You know, what what are you sort of pushing for in that regard? Yeah, I don't think that enough is being done to mitigate it. Uh, the L train runs through almost the entire length of the district, uh, so it's it, it. This is truly something that just clearly disproportionately affects members of the 18th, um, not least because uh, it's it's mostly working class people rely on the transit system rather than some other. You know, what, rather than on on cars um, or or some other way of getting around, um, most people commute. So I think that more needs to be done in order, and and the process needs to be informed by people who are actually being affected by it. Um, I think also it's going to disproportionately affect uh, people who who already have limited mobility, um, people with disabilities. 
Uh, and th this is a, the, the problem with the L train is really a microcosm, right? Because this issue is still affecting people across the city, even, you know, the, their, their train isn't being shut down entirely for three years, but, uh, but they still are, are affected by delays every day, um, et cetera. So I think that we do need to invest a lot of money, billions of, do of dollars actually in, uh, in repairing the subway, the, the signal system, um, and, and expedite the process, uh, realize the urgency of, um, of not only repairing the L train, uh, but making sure that more buses are running, um, and also that for working people um, and for, for poor people, um, it's, it's easier to be able to use public transit. So subsidizing it in that way as well. Mm. Well, they did. I, recently, I think maybe it was last month, the mayor did announce, I think there is some scheme in place to start subsidizing certain individuals' metro cards. Yes, if you make a... A certain number, uh, if you fall below a yeah, certain Yeah, fall below a certain income, income level, yeah. Mm -hmm. You get uh, reduced fare, uh, subway, and, and bus things. I did read that. But uh, the, the, you know, the other thing that that shutdown will certainly change in your district is I think it will have its own impact on the amount of development going on there. You know, it's, I think we are already starting to see people. I, I live in the district, but I live sort of on the southern tip, um, just above Broadway. And, you know, it's, it's part of Bushwick, but it's not Bushwick proper, as I like to call it, but it's <laughs> changed so much. Yeah, are you, are you I live there too, actually. I live off Bushwick Ave. Oh really? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm are, are you in a are you, Tony? Are you in a rent control? I actually rent? am. I'm in a rent stabilized building. Um, and what? How's how's life like for you in the rent stabilized building? Well, so for three years, my rent hasn't changed. Okay, um, which is great. Uh, I, I, I from what I understand, my building is rent stabilized via a J fifty one tax break or something like that. And what so is a J fifty one tax break? It's Something that it's a it's a incentive for the developer to. <coughs> sorry, I dropped my pencil. Stabilize rents in the building. I, it may have to do with the fact that when they converted it from commercial to residential, mm -hmm. they got they are, I'm not sure if that is why. The how tax long ago? Was how long offered. ago was it? Um, uh, I think in like the late '90s. The late '90s. Or it was converted. Sometimes in the '90s. Yeah, it's allegedly a former garter factory. Cool. Um, it's cool. It's a great building. It's not in the best condition, you know, but it's livable. And I worry, you know, I worry about the the rent deregulate. You know, that's something that I because I don't know that I would be able to afford this if it went up to market rate or if it went up to market rate in two more years. Um, my landlord seems like a good guy, but not all of them are, you know, and who knows? Maybe he's not. Um, so but how's it? How is it when it comes to repairs and, and stuff like that? They're pretty reliable. Mm -hmm. um, the building probably has like 50 units in it. There's an in there's a super who lives across the street. So mm -hmm. he's not on site, but he's not like in some yeah. office yeah. far away. Yeah. Uh, and a manager who lives in the building. We have had a roof issue since we moved in that hasn't been fixed. And I'm not sure if it's 
just general malaise or I'm a little worried that if they fix it, they'd have to move us out. So I haven't been that vocal about <laughs> it because I don't want to leave. Um, but it's it's not bad. I have to say it's not bad. It's probably the best situation rent wise I've had since I moved to the city. And how, long and have, how long have you been there? I've been there for three years. We moved in, in 2016. And how's the upkeep been around the building? The upkeep is great. I mean, yeah. it's, it's one clean. of those... It's, the building itself is clean. There is a phantom... There is a cat and a cat owner... Or a dog and a dog owner, rather, who use the hallways as a bathroom. So that's kind of a problem. But that's not indicative of the building. It's just that tenant. Uh, but it's cool. It's like half of the exterior is a public art project. They've got murals on it that change all the time. Um, and I think it's like... In my mind, I see it as the Dakota of its <laughs> of its time and place. Like four, fifty years from now, when Bushwick is um, Williamsburg it'll, it'll be the proper, Bush, it'll be the Bushwick Museum. Yeah, there will be an oral history of everyone who lived in fifteen Lawton Street. Um, <laughs> I, actually, that's how I first learned of Julia's candidacy because um, her canvassers managed to get in there and they were knocking on the doors. Not, I, they're actually out there doing that. They were that. knocking on the doors. And and we've I've run into them in the neighborhood, uh, I think, every weekend since. And that was probably a month ago. So, you know, a lot of... I will say a lot of people claim campaigns are grassroots and on the streets. I, I have seen her campaign on the streets mm -hmm. with my own two eyes and heard the knocks on the doors with my own two ears. So... Um, you know, kudos for actually doing that. Um, I think that half of winning an election is showing face. Showing, yeah. And I've never seen Being Senator there. DeLon, not that I'm saying he's not there, but... Do you I, know what he looks like? I do know what he looks like. Okay. Um, I ask the tough questions, Tom. I, listen, if you don't know what someone looks like, how are you going to see him? Except you can't see him. But now will you guys engage in any debates are you trying to sort of set up any 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 events where constituents can kind of see well where do you stand as to as to getting on the ballot how do, how do things look things look great uh we because i know that can be tough yeah and there, there could be lawsuits and such yep absolutely and that's why it's important so the minimum number of si petition signatures that you need in order to get on the ballot is 1,000 valid signatures. Uh, and that's why we set a goal of 4,000 petition signatures. Uh, petitioning has just ended. We ended up collecting more than 4,000 signatures. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so that's really exciting. Um, and it's it's a good demonstration of, of just strength. Um, Tell us what, like, what it was like in, in your campaign office after Ocasio-Cortez's uh, primary win like how did that change your campaign did it change your campaign you know what did it change the people's opinions towards besides getting position? you on Brooklyn Paper Radio right. what else right. has it done for you <laughs> sure uh, yeah well a lot of our volunteers were actually o overlapping with uh, Alexandria's volunteer base uh, before before her election and she and her team were very supportive of us, um, and and sa said, you know, we're going to transfer momentum from this campaign. Uh, we're part of this movement, and I didn't realize it would happen so quickly. I was actually in the Bronx, um, in the same billiards hall uh, as Alexandria, the night uh, of the Tuesday, June 26th, uh, primary election, 
And within hours, we saw it really just an exponential surge in donations um, and in volunteer signups. And that was even coming from a, a place of, of strength before that. Uh, we have a, a pretty robust field operation and had, had mobilized hundreds of volunteers at that point, but now it's, it's definitely exploded. And what about uh, Cynthia Nix, you know, same thing or different or how's that helped or not or whatever with the campaign? Yeah, uh, Cynthia Nixon's en endorsement, our cross endorsement uh, came days after Alexandria's victory. Uh, and so I think that it's, they're, they're related. Um, and, and it's, the relationship that I see is that Cynthia Nixon is a strong and inspiring left candidate, uh, and to have her up ballot, uh, I think is going to increase progressive voter turnout, uh, which, which is definitely favorable for us as well. All right. Our guest, if you just tuned in, of course, is Julia Salazar. She's, um, She's running uh, for Martin Dillon's seat over there in uh, Greenpoint and Williamsburg and Bushwick, and she is a uh, Democratic Socialist. Now, I was looking at your website before the show and during the show, believe right. it or not, and you, you, can, you can go online and check it out. It's Salazar, S-A-L-A-Z-A-R, for Senate, F-O-R-S-E-N-A-T-E dot com. It's up there right now. And uh, you can go through all of uh, what she wants to accomplish if elected. I see that you're for uh, the legalization of marijuana. Now, here's one of the things I got on legalization of marijuana. Does the legalization of marijuana mean you could smoke marijuana on the street? Let's go around the room. Tony, yes or no? Yes. Yes. Me? I say no. Because I, I, I notice it now a lot more often. <laughs> like yeah. I'm walking down the street yeah. and, and somebody's smoking weed. Well, and for some reason, it rubs me the wrong way. What's your take? Hmm. I think that the same laws that currently apply to smoking anything else should it, so so or rather to smoking cigarettes. Yeah, um, it's legal, really legal. Is smoking anything legal? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So to say anything else, yeah. Uh, but smoking smoking cigarettes, I do think that it's important to, for just for public safety um, to to like regulate it. Uh, but can I you smoke weed? Can you smoke a cigarette in a car? Driving? I believe yeah. so, yeah. With a kid? I mean, I don't think They've changed the law. laws so much. You I know, it all started with elevators. Do you know that? It yeah. all started with... Was that what like, it was? The elevators were the first thing that, you know, you can't smoke in an elevator. Because up until, like, the 1970s or something, you could just you could smoke anyway. Was that before planes? Right. Oh, yeah, way before planes. Oh, wow. Oh, are you kidding me? And it was so funny, because, like, in the 80s and 90s, <clears> before they banned smoking on planes, you could smoke... Like you had to be in the back of the plane. Like it mattered. You were in a giant tube, <laughs> and it, and but oh no, you could so you could be in one row that was non-smoking, and the row behind you was smoking. It was very very. And they used to smell cigarettes. They'd sell cigarettes on the plane. Right well, at the yeah. duty free. Get a giant pack of Marlboro Red. Oh, it was wonderful. I think right now, I mean, I, I, the D, Eric Gonzalez at least. You know, I don't. I think on the street. Obviously, I think per Julia's point, the rules apply. You know, to where it's legal to smoke cigarettes you know i don't i don't believe you can do that in parks or anywhere like that anymore um but you know i don't i think in brooklyn you're not going to be prosecuted just for smoking on the street unless you have a record or another reason for you know unless unless there's another sort of 
reason that they should be looking at this behavior. No, I'm perfectly honest with you. I just don't like the smell. No, it, it does rub people like the, the wrong way. I don't like the smell. And it's like you're walking past and you're like, oh, jeez. Mm-hmm. You know? It's but I would think that if you like, you wouldn't be able to smoke pot in a car well, with, with a child in the backseat. Think of how many people who vape. Think about the children, who Tony. Smoke, who smoke from vape pens and you don't smell it at all. That could, yeah. That and then your your problem is completely... Well, again, yeah, that, that problem is using oil. I don't have a problem with that. I have, yeah. pr- I have a problem with the with the with the stinky stuff. It's just the stench. Yeah, I know it's pretty bad. Do you, ha- Julia? Do you have a relationship with the at all with the current Democratic Party here in Brooklyn with Frank Stedio with with any of those guys? Good question. Tone. Good question. That was in my list. No. Uh, so other than being a registered Democrat um, and a political activist, uh, no, um, and and having the endorsement of um, of a couple of Democratic clubs, so of North Brooklyn Progressive Democrats, for example. Uh, but otherwise, no, no, no official affiliation or relationship. Would you seek one out, or is that something that would be like a grenade to your campaign? Yeah, I definitely don't think it would be a grenade, um, but it's not. I mean, my priority is community organizations um, and and groups that uh, are directly accountable to voters. Um, so so and and also those who I think um, are aligned with my politics would would actually be interested in in um, seeing me win this race. Uh, so and and not likely to favor the incumbent. Um, so yeah, not a priority. Got it. Yeah. Are you are you expecting them to challenge your petitions? Uh, I mean, part of why we got four thousand is, of course, the 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 strength um, and and the conversations with voters that lead to petition signatures. But it also is to just be able to withstand any legal challenge. So yeah. you're hoping that you got enough that no matter what you'll be okay. Yeah, and absolutely. that would put you on the ballot no matter what. Yeah, yeah, I feel of the, 100% the primary, confident on the primary ballot. Yeah. And when's the primaries in September? September thirteenth. September 13th. Is, would it just be you and Dilan as far as you know, or are there any other candidates going on the yeah, in, in that race? Yeah, it's just me and Senator Dilan. There you go. Two candidate showdown. Yeah. Looks like it. All right. I hate to cut things short, but I gotta I gotta go pick up my kid. You know how it is? <laughs> but I wanna thank you for coming on. I want to remind readers, you can check out uh, her website at salazarforsenate.com. Um, I want to thank Tony for uh, putting this all together. It's Along with Bobby. My pleasure. Bo- it was really Bobby. Bobby did it all? Always. And Tony? I just... And Eric? Sat here and looked good. Did you, are, shall we throw it to uh, the guest to see if there's anything? Yeah, is there anything else that you wanted to say before we close up shop? Closing statement. It's all yours. You got, you know, a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So the website again, salasarforsenate.com. Uh, also, our campaign office is at 82 Central Ave, right in the middle of Bushwick, uh, between Jefferson and Melrose. Um, we're open every day. People are always coming in and out. Uh, so we would love anyone to stop by. Um, and just thank you all so much. Thanks, Tony, Vince, Eric, Bobby. You're a great team. Um, and I appreciate the plug. <laughs> <laughs> we try, we try yeah. our best. Thank you for coming in. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I think that's going to do it for this week. Next week, who do we got? Uh, who do we got? Anybody? A surprise guest. Oh, surprise guest next week. But in two weeks, we'll have the. Borough I think president. we got the borough president coming, coming on. on. Always a pleasure. Always fun to have him on. All right. I want to thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time on Brooklyn Paper Radio. Goodbye. Bye.